Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Peter, thank you for coming on Leave Your Mark, the podcast. I remember first learning about you on Twitter. Yes, that was back in the day when Twitter wasn't evil and everyone was using it and happy and carefree. It was good times. <laughs> and then I believe we first met at a conference, but I don't remember which conference. I have no idea which conference it was, but I do believe that that's the first time we actually met physically in person. Yes, yes exactly. So you've had an incredible career. I mean, the New York Times has called you a rock star who knows everything about social media and then some. How did you get that title and that recognition from the New York Times? Uh, it was probably about 10 years ago or so, and there was an article about Motrin. Motrin had done a uh, campaign targeting moms and just screwed it up royally. And uh, I believe it was Lisa Belkin who was writing a story about this, and she called me. And I basically gave her a social media lesson. This was probably 2008, 2009. She was floored because there was someone she didn't know. And uh, she ran the story and that was the title. I had no idea that was going to run and it was lovely to see. <laughs> I uh, took full advantage of that, used that title ever since. <laughs> but how did you, I mean, obviously everyone in social is self-taught. So back then, 2008, how did you even know what you were doing? I'm a geek. I've been a geek all my life. I started my career uh, working for America Online. And I launched the newsroom with, with two other editors. We launched the newsroom in America Online. You know, AOL was the internet back then, right? And so everything that happened after that, I sort of was at the forefront of. And I watched and I, I, I've i always been that one who wants to get involved in this stuff really early and see where it goes. You know, I had a 3D printer, I think in like 2014. Um, I remember having a cell phone that I paid for on my own in college, which sounds perfectly normal now, but this was 1993. And it was the size of a brick. It was the Zach Morris phone from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> So it, I think when you're into tech and into sort of cool stuff, people naturally gravitate towards you and ask questions and things like that. You know, the ADHD, the ADHD in me certainly does help. It keeps me intrigued and excited about things and curious. And being naturally curious, I think, is the ultimate gift. That's amazing. And we're going to get to that later. So you are a five-time best-selling author. You're an entrepreneur. You're a corporate keynote speaker. You're actually leaving today to do another keynote. How many keynotes have you done, by the way? Do you even know? Oh, God, I have no idea. But I probably do about 50 or so a year. Wow. And one of your first books, I believe it was one of your first books, or at least what I know as one of your first books, was really about creating this loyal army, right? 
zombie loyalists. What made you so obsessed with focusing on customer service and teaching companies how to care about their consumers? Well, Zombie Loyalists is actually my fourth book, and it came after I started and sold help. Once I sold Help a Reporter Out, I spent about two years trying to figure out why it sold for as much as it did. I'm not an MBA by any stretch of the imagination. And so I had no idea, you know, what the company was worth, whatever, and it sold for a ridiculous amount of money. And I spent the next two years trying to figure out why. And that led to the realization that customer service in this country sucks. It's hideous. It's beyond horrible. We expect nothing. And the reason my company was so valuable was because I was simply doing things that I thought were normal, that I thought everyone did, right? Uh, Answering emails when people questioned me, um, you know, things like that. And it turns out, nope, that's not what people expect at all. And so being able to be a little bit nicer can really win you all the things. And one of the things I learned is that because customer service is so bad in this country, being a little bit better than what we expect creates this army of zombie loyalists, people who are so loyal to your brand that they will go around and share how great you are. They will tell people, right? You know, zombies really, all they like to do is, you know, feed and make more zombies. It's the same thing with zombie loyalists. You create a great experience for someone they will go out and tell the world how great they were treated, which comes down to the fact that as business owners, as entrepreneurs, as as people working with customers, we need to stop chasing the likes and start doing more likable things. Oh, I love that. That is such a cool quote. So let's go back for one second, because I don't know if everyone knows what Help a Reporter Out is, and I think you should explain it and how you even thought of it in the first place. So Help a Reporter Out is simply put a uh, email newsletter. You sign up for free at helpareporter.com, and three times a day you get an email from the service with queries from the media. So you're talking about upwards of 150 queries a day, sometimes over 200, from all major media. So the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, Associated Press, uh, Oprah, whatever it is. And if you are knowledgeable about anything that any of these reporters are asking about, you simply reply and you can get quoted in major media. And it sort of changed the foundation of how journalists and sources find each other. And I built it because I just, I talked to everyone. Again, ADHD, I talked to everyone. And Reporters would call me all the time, Peter, you you know everyone. I'm doing a story on blah, blah, blah. Who do you know? And it started taking more and more of my time. I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that led to my creating this email newsletter. And uh, within three years, we had uh, three quarters of a million people receiving wow. three emails a day from us uh, with about a 79% open rate in each email. Um, I'll never get that again. I mean, it was just insane. But it was amazing. And it was acquired about three years after I started it. Um, it was an amazing experience. Who acquired it? A company called Vocus. Now they're known as Cision. Oh, my goodness. Of course I know Cision. That's like every PR person's like yep. best friend. You know, it's so funny. I knew about Help a Reporter Out, of course, being in PR. But I didn't know that you founded it. And then when I met you and connected the dots together, I was like, oh, my God, that's the coolest thing ever because it is such an essential part of the job. It's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And you also created the Shank Minds Breakthrough Network, which is an elite online mastermind of thought leaders, business experts, and change makers. Tell me about Shank Minds. I remember going to Shank Minds dinner, which was lovely. But how does this group operate and what can people learn from being a part of it? So for me, when I was running Harrow, one of the things that happened as an entrepreneur, I'm running this multi-million dollar company and I had absolutely no one to talk to. Being an entrepreneur is incredibly lonely. I had lots of friends, but none of them were entrepreneurs. None of them understood. I mean, I remember dating a woman once and she called me like on a Wednesday and I was sitting at the W Hotel in Midtown waiting for a meeting to start. And she calls me, she goes, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm at the W waiting for me. She's like, oh, tough life. Why don't you do some work? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm working harder than you every day. You know, just because you're not happy in a cubicle, don't give me crap about the way I choose to work, right? 
And I really just people don't understand what entrepreneurs go through. And I didn't want other people to deal with that. I've also lost a couple of friends in the past 20 years to suicide who are entrepreneurs who didn't feel like they had anyone to talk to. I'm like, there's got to be a way to change that. And I didn't want, you know, when I sold to Harrow after I got all these emails, oh, congratulations, you're, you know, join our million dollar mastermind. It's only 50 grand a year. I'm like, you know, bitch, if I had 50 grand a year, I wouldn't be spending it on, you know, I wanted to do something that regular people who, you know, just starting out or a couple of years in. Or, and, and so Shank Minds was born and it's almost entirely online. We have about two in-person events per year. But other than that, we're primarily online. We operate through a private Facebook group. And we do two video calls a week. You can join as many or as little as you want of them. Um, but we have everyone. We have about 150 people in that group, ranging from website developers to home inspectors, people who go and look at your home before you buy it or sell it, real estate agents. Uh, we have accountants. We have lawyers. We have doctors. We have all these people in this group who the only thing we all have in common is we're entrepreneurs. And we offer advice and our time to each other. And we get help from it. And it's a wonderful place to be because there are so many people who don't have that tribe. And so having a tribe and building this, this group of people, knowing that, okay, I need, I need a graphic designer in Dallas tomorrow. Okay, someone in my group is going to know who to call. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Plus, it's great accountability. We have people in the group who are early morning workout people like I am, and we'll call each other, right? Guys, someone give me a call at 5 a.m. at this number and make sure I'm awake. I get a late night, but I need to get my work in. And, so, you know, like four people will call the person at like 5 in the morning and be like, are you up? Are you working out? You know, it's... It's a wonderful feeling to know that there's accountability and there's people that care. It's amazing. I mean, I think it's like you built your own network and essentially it's a community where you guys lean on each other and can really benefit from knowing each other. And I think there's something so special. And I love the idea of these sort of smaller intimate circles because I was speaking to someone recently about, you know, someone was saying, oh, you went to this conference. And I'm like, you know, no, because every time I go to a conference, I meet like one or two people I take a business card and it really serves no purpose. But I oh, think totally. these more intimate settings where you have also the frequency of being able to connect multiple times a year, I think is is really special and really effective. No question about it. I mean, for me, it really comes down to being able to have a, a trusted tribe, a trusted group of people who I can go to for anything, right? Who, who know what it's like to be an entrepreneur, who know how lazy it gets, who know how, how difficult it can be, how uh, tiring it can be. Right. And to not be judged by these people, but to be like, yeah, we get it. You know, it's, it's cool. Like, you know, guys, I didn't do anything today. I took the day off. I laid on the couch all day and watched reruns of American Dad. And they'll be like, yeah, I, I did that last <laughs> week. I needed that break. You need to regenerate it. It's awesome when that happens. So you have a neuroatypical brain. Yes. And your podcast, Faster Than Normal, has helped thousands of people around the world realize that having a neuroatypical brain is actually a gift, not a curse. Now, first of all, have you known this your whole life? Like, tell us the backstory of this and how did you even come up with Faster Than Normal? I think it's really incredible because turning something like ADHD into a positive and really sort of fuel for your creativity is really inspiring. Well, I've always been different. I mean, I've always been weird. It's the weirdness that used to get me in trouble growing up in school that now makes me a lot of money, right? Um, being, <laughs> you know, being the class clown was, I didn't know it at the time, being the class clown was simply my way of trying to get more dopamine, adrenaline, and serotonin into my brain, the stuff that people who have regular brains make enough of that allow them to focus. And people like me, we don't make enough of that. And so we're always looking for new ways to make it. Um, the problem is in school, that tends to get you in trouble, 
right? Or mm-hmm. as an adult, if you don't know what you're doing, you know, that can get you in jail. 65, there's a, one study that said 65% of currently incarcerated males are undiagnosed ADHD. And so the premise of being able to figure out positive ways to use that faster brain is unlimited potential and unlimited power. And the things that I can do with my faster brain, you know, my faster brain is responsible for my five books, my three companies. Uh, it, it allows me the best single dad in the world. I love my faster brain, but I have to take care of it. You have to know how to take care of it. You have to know how to use it to the best of your ability. And a lot of times that means putting rules and processes into place to prevent you from going off the rails. And every single one of our guests on the podcast, and we've had tremendous, we have Tony Robbins, Seth Godin, Keith Crotch, who founded DocuSign, Dave Nealman, who founded JetBlue, Danny Meyer. Um, we have Shinedown, the band coming on next week. We've had incredible guests, over 150 guests, including you know regular people like PhDs at Harvard and, and CEOs and 14-year-old kids who are actresses and doing and they all say that yeah you have to understand how to better use your brain and how to allow your brain to get what it needs in a better way and so you know for me a lot of that is making sure that i am uh, i work out every morning i have to work out every morning if i don't work out every morning i tend to have a lesser day than I could, right? I need that dopamine. I need that serotonin first thing in the morning. And so, but, you know, I have a crazy schedule. And like I said, I'm a single dad. And so in order to do that in such a way that doesn't impact anyone else for the rest of my life, I'm up most days as early as 3.45 in the morning. And you know what? My husband wakes up at 3.45 yeah, in the morning. I'm up at 3.45. I'm on my Peloton bike by, you know, 3.50. I bike for an hour, hour and a half. I get off the bike, I get in the shower, or I go for a run or whatever. When I don't have my child, I go for a run, I come back, I get dressed. It's not even 6.30 yet. And now I have time to face the day calmly. You know, I'm not under the gun. And it's just a much better way for me to be. And it allows me to use my brain to its fullest potential. But again, it comes with restrictions. I quit drinking because I don't have moderation. I don't have the ability to moderate. I have two speeds. And only two speeds. I have namaste and I'll cut a bitch. And there is no <laughs> – there's no middle ground there. To understand how that works, I have to make sure that I'm doing the right thing by my brain. You know, Like I said, I don't drink. I, I have two sides to my closet and they are labeled. One side says office slash travel and it's what I'm wearing today, which is a, a long sleeve t-shirt, jeans, and sneakers. And the other side says speaking slash TV and it's button-down shirts, jackets, and jeans, and that's it. My suits, my vests, my sweaters, all that stuff is in my daughter's closet, right? Because if I had to look at that every morning, you know, oh, my God, I remember that sweater. Laura gave me that sweater. I wonder how she's doing. I should look her up. It's three hours later. I'm naked in the living room on Facebook, and I haven't left the house. <laughs> so wait, so who sorted your closet for you to start? Did you do it yourself? I, I actually, my assistant who lives in Boston was actually in New York for the weekend. I'm like, can we do a project? And she rolled her eyes, <laughs> but we wound up doing it and it worked. It really, really worked because, you know, I know what I wear. I have a uniform and that uniform works for me. You're the second person in the past month who has told me that they have a uniform. Somebody else I know literally wears the same top and the same pants every single day so they don't have to think about it ever again. Now, that being said, I have probably 100 t-shirts, right? And they're all really cool and they all have meaning to me, but I don't have to think about it. I reach in. I can do it in the dark. I reach in. I grab the top one and I wear it. It's incredible. I mean, I guess, you know, it's also probably a guy thing too. 
Because clothes not necessarily. You don't not think? necessarily. I, a lot of a lot of the female guests on Fashion Normal do the same thing. They can rotate between five or six tops and you know five or six bottoms and a couple of different pairs of shoes. Now, not you, Aliza, because you are like the fashionista queen of all that is fashionista <laughs> and queenie. But you know, you, I, I can't imagine what your walk-in closet looks like. I'm imagining you know Sex in the City type thing. But but for most people who are not you know sitting from upon high greeting their subjects. Like you do. And I, and I say this with complete and utter uh, devotion. I am definitely one of your subjects. And I have drank the Elisa like Kool-Aid like, <laughs> f- multiple times. But, you know, when you give up a lot of the uh, thoughts and thought processes that have become ingrained in your brain, the less you have to think about things, the less choices you have to make about mundane stuff, the more you can focus on doing things that matter and creating things and being present. And I like to think I have really good style. I mean, you, you've you dressed me back when you were working for uh, yeah. TQI. I mean, I, I like to think I have really good style. I just know that that style can only come out when I plan for it. If I don't plan for it and I go down that rabbit hole, it doesn't end well. I think it's brilliant. And I think, you know, you make a great point about making room in your brain for more important things. And I think that is why you've been able to accomplish so much because you're focusing on what is important and for you, that's, you know, writing 50 million books and speaking everywhere and inspiring people. And I think one of the things that you do so well is I feel that you are always thinking about what you can do for other people. So I remember, you know, looking at your site when you launched Zombie Loyalist, as an example, and you had a laundry list of like 85 million things that you would do for a company who would purchase X amount of books. And it was so well done. So well done. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, what's funny. I think that, again, you don't need to be awesome. You just need to be a little bit better. That's my favorite joke. Uh, Two guys are on a trail run in the woods and they're about six miles in and they're having a great time and they see a bear. And they're like, oh my God, it's a bear. And the bear sees them and he starts to raise, get up his back paws and there's like, we're going to die. And the, um, (laughs) the first guy leans down, he tightens up his running shoes. And the second guy says, what the hell are you doing? You can't outrun a bear. I says, no, no, no. I just need to outrun you. <laughs> but it's so true, right? You know, I don't need you to be awesome. I just need you to be a little bit better. And so the simple act of, of being nice. I mean, I post once a week on Twitter. Hey, guys, what are you working on? How can I help? And people respond to me and I respond back to them. It's just, it's what we should do. I think you're right. And I think you're very sincere about it. But most people do not do that. Most people are thinking about what can people do for them. That's the beauty of it. That's why I don't need you to be awesome. Yeah. No, I right? get it. If most people suck, I don't need you to be amazing. I just need you to suck a little less. <laughs> Peter, what's your life mantra? Suck a little less, right? I ask, I ask people all the time when I give these speeches, you know, hey, who had a good flight recently? Like two people raise their hand and be like, hey, what made it good? Oh, we took off on time. We landed on time. Like, right. You paid for a flight, what's called a contract of carriage, which said the airline would take you to and from a certain place at a certain time, and that's exactly what they did. They didn't let you fly the plane. They didn't name it after you. But <laughs> you raised your hand. This was an awesome flight. Why? Because the experience you expected was, you know, the anal probe at the TSA and them changing the gate on you to, like, the other end of the airport, if not, like, three airports away, and, you know, not finding your bags. And, and so they did the basics. You're like, oh, my God, best flight ever. You know, <laughs> I don't need you to be awesome. It's a really good point. It's a really good point. You're changing my whole view about my entire life right now. I would say, though, I think my mantra is more along the lines of just be kind. Be kind to everything that lives. I like it. I like it. Talk to me about, okay, your physical health. You are 
a two-time Ironman triathlete. Like, really? You are a skydiver. How many dives have you taken? Uh, just under 500. Just under 500. Okay. That's a lot, Peter. I keep asking you if you go with me. I will never go you with you. I'm scared. Are you kidding me? You can I... wear whatever you want. <laughs> I am never <laughs> going to go with you. I am totally scared. What? Face your fears. <laughs> why did you go on the first one? Is that why you did it? Face your fear? I No, I did the first one because, again, my different brain. In the summer of 2000, I was running my PR firm, The Geek Factory, and I was trying to figure out how we could differentiate ourselves from all the dot-com PR firms that were popping up. And I'm like, you know, what can we do differently? What can we do where we can invite reporters? Ooh, let's go skydiving. And, you know, we took 150 people skydiving. Skydiving, in a lot of ways, is like a drug in that you give 100 people, like, some cocaine, right? And, like, 99 of them will be like, oh, yeah, that was fun. I, you know, and one person will be like, I need more cocaine. And I'm <laughs> Only that guy. one? You think only one? <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. It's, it's, the studies have shown it's not everyone. Interesting. But I'm, I'm that guy. Not with drugs, but I am that guy with things that increase the chemicals in my brain that allow me to focus, like dopamine, serotonin, and adrenaline. So I did that first job. I'm like, I got to do more of this, and I got my license. Uh, same thing as I do Ironman. I did a 5K. I never ran growing up. I ran by pressing X on my keyboard, right, or on my joystick, or I ran to the store for cigarettes. That was about it. In my late 20s, one of my employees said, hey, you should try running. It's fun. I don't know. She's like, come on. You can drop 20 pounds. Thinner people get laid more. Those were her exact words. I said, okay, I could try that. And I did like half a mile. I'm like, this is addictive. And I did my first 5K. And I'm like, that was awesome. Let's do a marathon. Like, no, no, Peter, you just did 5K. No, I'm going to do a marathon. And I did the marathon. And I'm like, well, that was fun. Let's do a triathlon. I did a little triathlon. I was like, let's do an Ironman. I'm like, I don't have, again, there's no middle ground. Yeah, but you're extreme. Because running, skydiving, triathlon, all those things increase the dopamine and serotonin and adrenaline. So I'll make a skydive. I'll go to the drop zone like seven in the morning. I'll jump on like the first load of the day at 8 a.m. I'll get out of the plane at 13,000 feet. I'll free fall for about 45 seconds. I'll open my parachute. I'll steer towards the drop zone. I'll land in the drop zone. I'll go to the corner of the hangar, take off my rig, throw it down, grab my laptop and write like 10,000 words in 30 minutes. Oh my God, you're unreal. I'm so incredibly focused from all... Basically, when you're about to jump out of the plane, all those chemicals in your brain... They have to be in immediate attention so you don't die. Once you've landed safely, they don't just disappear. They have to dissipate. They have to dissipate out of your brain over time. And that's when you're focused. Oh, my God. And so that's when I'll sit down and I'll get incredible amounts of writing done. So some people drink coffee, you skydive. That's exactly unreal. You are a single dad. You mentioned before. What are you teaching your daughter? What is most important to you that she learns from you specifically? We have a mantra that we say every night. Oh, I love it. I love a mantra. And it's affirmations. She memorizes them and, and then we pick one at random and we discuss it. But it is, I am confident. I am growing. I am honest. I am loved. I am unique. I am reliable. I am funny. I am brave. I am inspirational. My life is a wonderful adventure and I stand up for what's important to me. And we read that every night and we pick one and we talk about well, what does it mean to be brave, right? What does it mean... And it wasn't me to stand up for what's important to you. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, she told me that in school, one of the kids didn't want to give uh, her time with the magic marker was up or whatever and didn't want to give it to the next girl. And uh, Jess said, your time is up. You should give it to the next girl. It's the right thing to do. And I'm like, well, that's standing up for what's important to you. And that's being, you know, brave and inspirational. And, and it was just, it was wonderful. And she's six years old, starting to understand that, what they mean. And, you know, that's what I want her to learn. I want her to learn that doing the right thing doesn't always make you popular, but you do it because it's the right thing to do. I love that. 
you know, her mom and I are still very close friends. We're really great friends and we're really great co-parents. We just didn't work out as husband and wife. And it mm-hmm. happens. And it is my goal. I don't want her to ever be with anyone who would ever treat her any less than I ever treated her mom. That's great. And that's my goal is, is I want her to understand that she is worthy and deserving of being treated incredibly well. And, and everyone said when they found out I was having a daughter, I was like, oh, you better get that shotgun. And I'm like, no, I want her to get her heart broken every once in a while because that's how you learn. That's how you get stronger. Yeah, it's true. Right? If you don't get your heart broken, you can't stand up for yourself. You can't become stronger. And I know it's going to suck and I'm not looking forward to it. You know, she's a there's a girl, amazing about six-year-old girls is they go through four best friends in any given week. Yeah, uh, for if sure. not any given day. And, um, you know, there's this one girl who's mean to her. They're best friends, and she always gives her a second chance. And I had to talk with them. Like, you know, Jess, every once in a while, there comes a point where you run out of second chances. And every time you've given this girl a second chance, she's been mean to you again. And I, I don't think she's a nice person. And you might want to ask yourself, do you really want to waste your chances on someone who doesn't seem to want to change? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, she's a very nice kid. And my, my daughter's a very nice girl and wants everyone to be happy and wants to be friends. But I, I had to explain to her that, you know, sometimes it's okay to walk away. Yeah. And, and say no. But yeah. I want her to be happy. I want her to be happy and I want her to do great things. I think like every parent does. No, for sure. But I think you're teaching her really great core values. And I think it's really just lovely. And I'm not terribly surprised, actually. You, Peter, are incredibly outspoken. And especially on Twitter, right? Have you ever gotten yourself in trouble where you're like, damn, I wish I didn't say that? Oh, my God. It's, it's like, you know, Peter, I wish I didn't say that Shankman. Um <laughs> You know, I've gotten better as I've gotten older because one of the things I've learned, again, ADHD, you tend to talk before you think. And that is simply a desire for focus. I remember that I have, I mean, God, I could could think back to school. I'm cringing already about the countless times that I spoke without thinking and and it got me in trouble or it got me uh, labeled as the weird kid or whatever. But I think that Current day, I'm better. I'm better now than I was because I found other ways to get that chemistry in my brain, right? It doesn't have to be about being the class clown or being the adult clown anymore. I will say, though, that when I used to drink, I intentionally would not bring my phone. Oh. I had a friend who's from the UK, and he drank like a fish. And I'd go out with him a couple of times a year, and I'd have to keep up. And I'd leave my phone at home because the more I drank, the more I – would think of these incredibly brilliant things to say on Twitter. <laughs> and they were never brilliant. And they were always stupid. And nothing that is allegedly funny at 2 in the morning is actually funny at 9 a.m. the next day. So true. And I've, I've, I learned that. And I, so I, I wouldn't bring my phone and avoid that temptation. But I think that I tend to live by the rule of would it offend my parents, um, my rabbi, my daughter, or a client? And if what I want to say passes that test – I'm pretty good with posting it. It's been harder in the past two years because literally everything our current president writes, I want to counter. You know, and it usually, I usually want to start it off with you incredible fuckwad. <laughs> you know, you incredible fuckwad. How, you know, I've learned that you have to know your audience too. My audience doesn't come to me necessarily for political rants. And so I've learned to curb those. But yeah, it's, um, it's frightening. <laughs> well, you actually bring up a great point is, you know, social media today versus 10 years ago. What is your perspective even on how much it's changed? 
I mean, we, we all see every five seconds the latest person getting fired because of what they said on social media or whatever. I mean, I think the, the real turning point, you can go all the way back to 2008 or nine, maybe 2007, with what the heck was his name? Um, whoever had FedEx's PR account. And he landed in, uh, I don't remember where, but he landed and he goes, God, I, this place is a dump, you know, when you get out of the airport. And like, of course, that tweet was immediately seen by FedEx. You know, these people are taking pay cuts to stay in their hometown because they, they had such pride. And this guy, this flashy guy from New York, you know, gets off the plane and says, God, this place is a dump. Well, lesson learned, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can go all the way to, um, to what's her face? Uh, Justine. Oh, yeah. Saka. Yep. When the globally trending hashtag is, has Justine landed yet? You know, that tells you something. That was, I just got chilled, by the way. That was a really scary one. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there are 300 people waiting for her in the airport. Yeah, that was really, really scary. But even just building audience now, even for brands, individuals, whatever, I just think it's such a different game. It is. But the one thing that has not changed is transparency, mm-hmm. right? Be aware of your audience. Understand what they like. When you screw up, own it. You know, give them what they want and they will continue to come back. One of the things that always amazed me about Harrow, and this is one of the things I learned after selling it, you know, I was sending out 1.5 million double opt-in emails each day. And every single one came from Peter at Shankman.com. Mm-hmm. When you had a question about Harrow or, or you were curious, you just replied, right? And oh my God, Peter answered. I probably spent 90% of my day answering emails. Peter, that, that's a lot of answering emails. But that's all I did, right? <laughs> that was my entire job. Right. And so when you look at it from that perspective, you know, you have this concept of this is what I did for work. And this is how I created community with my audience and how I got this sort of one-on-one connection to my audience. And we look today, you know, we get these emails all the time. Please tell us how we did on our last whatever. How was your, you know, perfect example, United Airlines. And I fly United constantly. I'm very loyal to them, right? But they send me an email after every single flight because I'm one of their top flyers. They send me an email after every flight. Please tell us what we could do to, you know, how, to, how was your flight? How did it, what can we do to improve? And on every flight, for 245, 275 flights in a row, I get that email and I replied with the same answer. On my next flight, please refer to me as Peter, Lord of the Skies. Now, <laughs> I never expected them to do that, right? But you know what would have been nice, Lisa? After 150 of the exact same response to their survey. And by the way, the survey came from, you know, do not reply or we'll kill your, or we'll kill your children at united.com. <laughs> and then the first line is, we care about you, you know. And after 150 of these surveys with the same exact answer, you know what would have been nice? I would have loved a call from someone in marketing saying, hey, um, Mr. Shankman, yeah, so we're never going to do that. Stop it. <laughs> right? Anything that would have let me know they were listening because they care so much, but they don't actually, you know, they never responded. And then I would tell the story. In speeches and about 200, you know, 75 uh, emails later, I'm walking through, I think it was Orlando or Miami, I don't remember, I'm coming back from a talk, I board the plane, I'm first aboard and I, you know, beep and I walk through and I hear, excuse me, Mr. Shankman, and I'm like, oh crap, After if you're boarding and then they call you back, you're going to jail. I'm like, what I do? And the woman turns around and says, Mr. Shankman, I'm sorry, are you Peter, Lord of the Sky? <gasps> well, let me tell you something, Aliza, that flight was about 45 minutes late because I Instagrammed the shit out of that flight. There was not one person, one baggage worker, maintenance person that I did not get pictures. Oh my God, they called me beautiful. It was the greatest thing. And I'm triply loyal to United now. I'll never leave them. But 
think about that. You know, if that's all it took, why did it take 275 tries plus my mentioning it at speeches, which I'm sure is what wound up making it happen? For sure. Just be a little bit better. I love it. Such a great story. Wait, what? You have to share your Morton Steak story. That's the best story of all time. (laughs) So what happened is I tweeted out as a joke. I was flying home from a meeting. and I said, hey, Morton's, why don't you meet me at Newark Airport when I landed three hours at the porterhouse? (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. And they did. (laughs) It's incredible. And look, it's a wonderful experience of brand awareness. And they got it. And they made it happen. It was awesome. And it wound up on the Today Show. And it was everywhere. It was voted one of the top 10 tweets of the year. I mean, it's ridiculous. By Twitter and ABC News. It was insane. It was right up there with Osama bin Laden. Finding out Osama Laden was killed. I'm like, give me a break. But if they did that for me and then you went to Morton's and your steak was cold, right? Or your drink wasn't made right or whatever. You know, sure, they do it well for Shankman. They screwed me. It could hurt them. So it has to come down to great customer service all around. It's true. But I do love, I love that social media magic, right? It's like someone saw that tweet and was like, you know what? We're going to actually do that. I mean, to me, that is the genius of it. Like from a marketing perspective. It was amazing and it was a great experience. But understand that that's not customer service per se. Yes, I understand. I do understand. But that being said, it was awesome. So you're an entrepreneur through and through. I don't think you could be anything else, right? That's like... Probably not. What you were born to do, right? So it's 2019. What advice do you have for people starting out in their careers? Do you think that they should all be entrepreneurs? Do you think they should work for a company first? Like, what do you think the path is these days? Because honestly, my son's going to high school next year and I'm starting to think about, oh my God, high school. It's like, then college, then what? Like, what is the path these days? Living in a van down by the river. No, (laughs) I can't actually say what the path is. That's like you asking me what your favorite ice cream should be. I can't tell you that. Everyone's different. I could tell you that the path to happiness should include being happy Mm. and figuring out something to do that can get you there, something to do that can make you happy. I see a lot of people who I, I I think of one person specifically who works nonstop, bitches every three seconds about how busy her job is and how hard it would. But the funny thing is, is I don't think she could work in a job that didn't run her ragged because that's how, pardon the expression, that's what gets her off. Right. Right? She loves to be able to complain. She loves to feel like the entire company would fall apart if she wasn't, the, you know, but, <laughs> you know, she gets home to her, to her husband and she says, oh my God, everything's so terrible. Then why don't you quit? Well, I <laughs> And I think secretly that's what makes her happy. Could be what makes her tick. The key is just to be happy and to enjoy what you're doing. I can't emphasize that enough. What are you most excited about right now? I am excited. Well, I'm definitely about faster than normal because the more podcasts I do and the more coaching I do, shankminds.com slash ADHD coaching, little plug there, the more I realize that we are starting to change the conversation around ADHD. And I get emails every single day from parents. Oh my God, I thought my child was broken. Everyone told us he was broken. I'm reading your book and I'm listening to your podcast and I'm, I'm finding out for the first time that my son is not and he could actually be gifted and thank you so much. It's a wonderful feeling. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm loving doing that. I'm loving doing that so much. And it continues to grow and I'm getting calls now from a lot of corporations because the concept of mental awareness and mental diversity, it, you know, diversity can no longer just be sexual orientation and skin color. Mm-hmm. It has to be 
neurodiversity as well, which means you have to include mental health in that. And so I'm getting calls from companies. Can you come in and talk to us about how to make our company neurodiverse and how, because think about it, here's a stat for you. Within the next 10 years, 35% of the workforce and of the consumer purchasing force in the United States is going to be neuroatypical and neurodiverse. Wow. So ADD, ADHD, autism, spectrum, whatever. And so if you are a company, right? I mean, for instance, you walk into McDonald's and I've done a little work for them. You walk into McDonald's, there are 77 items on the menu. If you're ADHD, that's a death sentence. Interesting. Wow. I would never think about that. Yeah. Makes sense. But you walk into you walk into In and Out Burger, there are four. Right? So maybe McDonald's has to make an easy lane. I love that. Right? With just the basics. So things like that. So companies need to understand that. Companies need to understand that not everyone wants to work nine to five. And some people are gonna want to work midnight to eight, or some people are gonna work, you know, four a.m. I do my best work. I keep a Regis space in Midtown because with a kid and a nanny, and you know, it's not my apartment anymore, it's theirs. And I can't work surrounded by all that. So I keep a space where I can walk in and I, not we work because we work is fishbowl. It's, it's glass and people would always be walking by. And every time someone walked by, Ooh, what's that? What's that? What's that? You know, right. I'm the dog from up. So I go to my region space. I close the door. I'm surrounded by lawyers who don't know what the fuck I do. It's great. They're so confused by me. And I just go in and I might go in at 6am some days when I don't have my daughter and, and I'll look up again. It's 3pm and I've worked nonstop. So it's, it's wonderful. That's amazing. Peter, I adore you. Thank you so much for coming on Leave Your Mark. And where can everyone find you? Sure. So my email is peter at shankman.com. I answer all my email. I am at Peter Shankman on all of the socials, including Peloton. I would love if you have a Peloton. Let's. A Peloton is really a, a, the most culty thing I've ever seen in my life since I worked at AOL. Uh, it is amazingly culty. You know, if I'm on a plane and the we start to go down and the flight attendant bursts out and says, oh my God, the pilots are dead. Can anyone fly a plane? I'd be the guy standing up going, I can't, but I own a Peloton. Here's why you should get one. Like I'm that guy. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm at Peter Shankman everywhere. Um, and then the faster than normal.com is the podcast and the book. Um, and then shankminds.com is the online mastermind for entrepreneurs. You're amazing. You're ah, amazing. So are you. I love you, Aliza. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalick. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.